Please open your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter 2. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we can open the book of books and view your word that you say was purified seven times, though it never had any impurities ever. We thank you, Lord, that you've honored your word above all your name, and that word has declared to us our sin. The Lord has declared to us our rebellions and has declared to us the Lord Jesus, who knew no sin and who became sin for us that we might know the righteousness of God, become the righteousness of God in him. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you and pray that you'd help us to preach your word in truth and in love, and you'd open our ears and to hear your word in our hearts to receive your word so that we might walk in it before you all the days of our life. And we ask you this for Jesus' sake. Amen. My introduction is a little bit longer than usual because I want to uh, point out some things that I've been seeing and reading about 1 John. We've been comparing it to the book of Romans, which is somewhat linear. A goes to B, goes to C, goes to D, and we finish the book and we can outline it very nicely. The book of 1 John, someone has said, more, is more symphonic. What does that mean? Well, you remember the most famous symphony ever written was by Beethoven. It begins with da-da-da-da and goes through that. If you know, da-da-da-da. And takes that motif and begins to work it around and comes up with other things and comes back to that motif again. And so 1 John is symphonic in that it begins a topic, certainly beginning with the Lord Jesus Christ, and then talks about our sin, talks about us needing to love the brethren, and then talks about our sin and talks about the Lord Jesus Christ and begins to roll through these themes over and over again symphonically. And so the Lord has purposed both books. He's written all the Word of God. We need 1 John as much as we need the book of Romans. I'm thankful for both and all the Word of God. And you remember that 1 John was written with five purposes in mind. And uh, we're going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, to get this initial flavor. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which is with the Father and was manifested to us. He's speaking of Jesus in all of this. The one who is eternal from the beginning, he actually got to hear him, touch him, see him, and now he's going to declare to us the same. And why is he declaring this? He says, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I hope you never want to leave that thought. Either you're fellowshipping with him now, or you wish you were fellowshipping with him more, and you're looking forward to him for a, with a full fellowship unbroken forever in heaven. Why do you want to ever get off that subject? We don't. We abide in Christ. We're always, wherever we are, wanting to fellowship with him. I think of the, the, uh, the auto mechanic, of which I never was, but there's auto mechanics in this assembly who have helped me, and we're there working on a machine that is causing me grief, and we're to abide in Christ. <laughs> and rejoice. We're learning something about automobiles we've never learned before. We're spending money we hadn't had before, and all these kinds of things. So it's whatever we're doing, we're abiding in Christ. We're, we were given a, a notice from the doctor. Yes, it came back negative, or it came back positive. We're either rejoicing or not, and yet we're abiding in Christ whether good or evil report. Nothing changes. This is where we start our fellowship when we were born again. What's the first thing that happened? We began to fellowship with the Lord. We called upon him. He heard our voice and answered, and we were alive, crying as a little baby before him. Show me more. So John begins the book here, and the reason why I start here is because wherever we sit down in the book, we've got to remember this. He wants us to have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And then in verse 4 he says, And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Our joy does go up and down. And he knows those he's writing to need more joy. And so he's going to declare Jesus to them. And you know that in chapter 1, he says there's all these problems regarding sin. 
In chapter 2, he tells us that the solution to that sin is that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. He is the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. He is the sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God. He goes back to Christ again. And then he begins talking further about commandments that we need to keep and that he's given us a new commandment. There's an old commandment we've had from the beginning to love one another, but there's a new commandment in Christ that we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. And then there comes what we might call a pastoral interlude. That's what I'm introducing in chapter 2 in my introduction here. Verses 12 through 14, it's almost as if he's writing a song. He says, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children because you have known the father. I I have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. And it's almost, if you took, you could almost take these three verses out and continue on from the commandments to love, uh, you know, to love the brethren, and then to go to verse 15, do not love the world, you're to love the brethren, but do not love the world or the things in the world. And those who have commented on this say, it's like John says, let's take a little pastoral pause here. I've commanded you to love the brethren, and if you're not walking in that, you're not a Christian, basically. And if you don't love the world, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. These are very hard statements. Let me, let me just remind you who I'm talking to. I'm talking to Christians. I'm talking to older brothers in the Lord, sisters in the Lord, who've known him from the beginning. Writing to young men who are in the battle and are strong. Writing to you children, you've also known the Father and your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. And so he gets their eyes focused again. And then he comes to this powerful statement. If you, don't, if you, don't love, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. This, this book very, and someone used the word blunt, <laughs> he's just very powerful in his statements. This is a Christian, this is not a Christian. He's not dealing with a lot of gray in this particular book. We see some gray, that we, we see how, we, how to deal with sin maybe more, in more detail in another book that we'll look, about la- look at later. So, he moves on down and he's talking to the little children about the Antichrist. We know this is coming. It's already in the world. And when we get down to uh, verse 28, this is where we looked at last time, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 6, we, we looked at the fact that we are to abide in him and that we are looking for him and that we are to walk purely in him. So I'm going to begin reading with verse 28 and I'm going down to verse 15 of chapter 3. I'm going to be focusing primarily on verses 1 through 3, but also moving on 4 through 15. And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, 
nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So what a powerful passage we have here. And we mentioned this first pastoral interlude. There is a second pastoral interlude in what we just read. Notice that if we read verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Go down to verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he, he was manifested to take away our sins. So here we go from verse 29 to verse 4. If you take out those three verses, we wouldn't say, well, there's no, what changed? Nothing changed. This is what he's talking about. Verses 1 through 3 is a second pastoral interlude. Let's take a little back up here. I've spoken very strongly about your sin or not sinning, walking in him or not walking in him, being a Christian or not being a Christian. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. You need to think about what God has done. You remember in the previous verse it said, he who practices righteousness is born of him. And in this passage it speaks very powerfully that Christians don't sin. Well, it's talking about practicing sin. Some translations always state it as that practicing sin or practicing righteousness. What I'm thinking of is you get up in the day, here's my to-do list. Everything on it is something good. There's never a statement, well, I hope I can commit this sin. Christians never have that on the list. And if it ever falls in the day, it is a grief and a repentance. And if not, eventually God will send his spirit and you will repent as David did. Remember, nine months, and he hadn't yet repented of that sin with Bathsheba, but he did and wrote Psalm 51. You will repent. And so he takes us to this place of remembering, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Remember, this word behold is a word that, word that should stop us in what we're ever doing. Think about this. Do not take your eyes off of this thought that you are a child of God and how much love did God show in order for you to be that. You remember we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We were anything but walking as children of God. Yes, he chose us before the foundation of the world, but if the world was looking at us, they said, you're just like us. You're walking just as us. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, if you will, please. Okay, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Didn't we talk about the new birth? That's it. We were dead, he made us alive, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. We blended in very well, going south to sin as fast as we could and being glad of it, Sometimes sad of it because we got caught, but always thinking there might be another day to have more. And then, what does it say? Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so we sing the song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. T'was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. And never forget that. You didn't just somehow wake up someday and figure this out. You were heading in sin, and the Lord brought you, arrested you, and as, as the Scripture says, drug you to Himself. He drew you. Uh, you can look at that in John 6.44, that the Lord had to draw us and he did, he did a good job of it. And so we have this 
statement here. Now we're going to go through this passage from 3 to 15 particularly, and we're going to look at um, what we are to behold in our walk, in what way are we to walk, and then finally, what is an important part of this walk. And so, what are we to behold in our walk? We've read it. The manner of love the Father's bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. This is pure love. We know that in Romans 5, it tells us that when we were enemies, what is an enemy? It's someone who's trying to take you down. Someone who wants to injure you, hurt you, and just eliminate you. That's, that's the best thing to do with enemies, right? You take them out. We were an enemy of God. We wanted him not in our life. And Jesus, what is he doing? He's dying for us. We read in the Sunday school class, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was doing righteousness when we were doing unrighteousness. He was thinking of going to the cross when we were thinking of running from every way that God would have for us, especially suffering for him. And so we behold this. We think about it. And you wonder, how can I keep these commandments that are before and after this? Commandments that I've broken. You begin with doctrine. This is where the scripture also always starts. You think about who you are. I am a child of God. I think it was Bill Askell always told his children, well, what, who are you? Oh, I'm an Askell. In other words, when you go to that place, remember who you are, and you are representing the family. And other fathers have probably said the same. Don't forget who you are. And we must never forget we are children of God. What a vast privilege. We have an elder brother, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We have a Father in heaven that he has taught us how to pray to, our Father who art in heaven. And we bring every request to our Father. We see our Father ordering our days, and those days will lead to eternity with Christ. He's promised to make us just like his Son. What a fatherly promise. He's not going to fail. Remember it says in Philippians 1.6, He that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Yes, you've given up on him at times. That's when you sin. He didn't give up. He sent his spirit to convict you, to draw you, to remind you this is, this is sin. And he brought you to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because my son has paid for your sins. You were bought with such a great price. And so when we remember we're children of God, we remember where we came from, and we remember what God had to pay in order to make us that child. It cost his dearly beloved son. It cost all of his son's life. Everything given up for us so that we might be made children of God. Behold it. (laughs) Never take your eyes off of him. It's not so much that I'm a child, which I am. It's look at the love the Father has bestowed upon me. How much he loves me. How can I sin against someone who loves me so much? someone gave you a million dollars, you wouldn't throw eggs at their house. (laughs) That's the last thing you'd want to do. (laughs) Then why do we sin against the Lord? Well, we can make excuses. There is the remainders of sin, but the Bible never gives us as excuses. What did he say? Uh, One of the reasons he wrote the book. Chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin so that you turn away from sin. If I can get you to remember all the time you're a child of the King, you're a child of God, then when that temptation comes, you're going to say, how could I do this? Jesus didn't do this. He would not want me to do this. He had to die for even the thought that I might want to do this. That was sin and the thought that I could do it. When Jesus saw this temptation, He never touched upon it with His thought, what if I did that? Pure and perfect. I am His. And so... We have this great beholding. And because of this, he says, therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. You walk, as it says, as pilgrims and strangers in the earth. Well, I was born in this city. I was born in this time. I'm this old. I've been here a while. I'm a citizen of the United States. Well, you are. But moreover, you are a citizen of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And the Lord has given us the Savior. He's going to make us 
like him someday, and now we walk, and the world doesn't really know this. Yes, we're that person who was nice to him as a neighbor, and we brought a Christmas present to him and prayed for their children, but they really didn't know we're children of God. We're just the person down the street. That's the way they thought of Christ. Uh, you, you mean you say he's the Savior? He's just down the block. That's, that's Joseph's son. That's Mary's son. Yeah, he was born illegitimately. Yeah, we know about him. They didn't know him. That's why they put him upon a cross, and they won't, will not know us. This is an evidence that we are a child of God. That if the world is not knowing us, it did not know Jesus. It hated him, and it will hate us. And so he tells us this. The world does not know us. But then he says, Beloved, now we are children of God. This is fact. We're not trying to become children. We already are. We've been born again. And you remember, this is a book about assurance. Chapter 5, verse 13. He wrote the book so that we might know that we have eternal life and that we might continue to believe on the Son of God and know that we have eternal life. This is one of his purposes. And so he's making very powerful statements. We are children. We're not trying to earn this position. We're try- trying to work hard so that God will, will save us. We know that there's, there's certain people who actually believe one of the, mo- the cardinal sin is to believe that you're definitely saved. They really do believe that. And yet, 1 John is written so that we might know for certain that we have eternal life. And he says, we are children of God. Now, what, is, what happens then? Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. These are precious promises to always remember, I'm a child of God, I'm going to be made just like Jesus, the world doesn't know me now, I'm not like I'm going to be, and I don't really under, know what that exactly is going to look like, but it will be perfection. It'll be exactly what God has purposes, purposed. It is coming to pass. I'm a child here, and I will be a child there. Marvelous. Now, how much sin do you want to do in the process? Christians would say, I want to walk without sin. Now, we know chapter 1 says if we say we have no sin, verse 8, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's certain. We have sin. Now verse 10 is not telling us in chapter 1 that the same thing as verse 8. Because verse 9 intervenes. It says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. Right? To forgive us our sins. Verse 10, I believe, is saying, what if God is telling you you've sinned and you're not agreeing with Him? That's, that's not sin. I, to say that to my wife, I was just helping her along the way get it right. Yeah, I had to say it a little louder than usual. And God is saying, no, you were unkind. You're saying, no, she needed that. If we, say, if, we, if we say we have not sinned, as the Spirit of God is convicting us, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. To say, God, you're, you're lying because I re- that's not really sin. We don't do that. We can do that. It says we can do that. But we don't want to do that because we make God a liar and his word is not in us. And then it goes on to say, my little children, if these th- I write these things that, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If we have sinned in that, and by the grace of God we confess our sins, we turn from them, and we want to find ourselves in chapter, end of chapter 2 and 3 doing what he says. So as we've had this interlude here to remind us who we are, and to where we are going. Notice verse 3, it says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is a statement of fact. Christians purify themselves. Remember it says in the Scripture elsewhere that without holiness, no man shall see God. This is not a self-constructed holiness. This is a holiness that God grants us by grace. But it's the holiness that we walk in. Yes, we are already sanctified in Christ, but we now must walk in that sanctification. We must seek to become what we are. We are righteous in Christ. He has forgiven all of our sins. He's laid them upon His Son, and He's pronounced us righteous just as He Himself is righteous. But now He says, walk in that righteousness. Remember that you are a child of God. Remember you're going to be with Me forever. And remember, this is what... Christians do. 
It is their new nature to flee from sin. I think of cats. Some of you have, have had pet cats. I had a pet cat one time. She was white. She had a one blue eye and one green eye. And she would rest upon my leg. And I, that's when we had cut off jeans. That was the style. And she would sharpen her claws on my jeans and somehow knew it wouldn't work on my flesh every time. It's a wonderful, wonderful remembrance of this cat. And, but I know that when this cat got dirty, she would never let it last. She would lick her paws until it was all gone, just cleansed herself. Couldn't stand any of that. It was her nature. Now you take the pig, and yes, we like bacon. But the pig, put it in the slop, clean it up. Where's the slop? We have a new nature. And we cannot abide sin. And this is exactly what he's telling us. We go back in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. We go on from verse 3 where we're purifying ourselves. And he says, verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin or does not practice sin. Whoever sins has never seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. So in what way are we to walk? We are to walk in his righteous commandments, in his righteous way. We behold him in this walk, and then we are to walk in righteousness. And you notice it says that we do not sin, but it reminded us, it reminded us again that Jesus Christ was manifested to take away our sins. Those very sins we confess, he was given to take them away. Not a little bit, but to cleanse us whiter than snow. We know of this in Isaiah chapter 118, that he's washed us whiter than snow. And so, this is what we are. We're this new creature beholding the Son, beholding as, his, as children of God, And then he says that we could be deceived in verse 7. Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever is born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, do you see this almost poetically as he We talk about Hebrew poetry where you have this line rhymes with this line by thought. And then there's this thought that rhymes with this thought. Well, see how he keeps laying this out over and over again as if he can't say it enough. Christians do not practice sin. Those who practice sin are of the devil. What a powerful statement. What a powerful demarcation. He doesn't have, it's either or. You are a Christian and you do not love sin and you do not practice it or you are of the devil and sin is your friend and you may hide it with self-righteousness. Hey, I'm not doing what they're doing, but you have this sin that you kind of keep on the side. You got this little box that you get out called sin and you you enjoy it and then you put that box up and enjoy your self-righteousness. Christians cannot do that. We cannot have sins that we maintain. Remember, it tells us that we are to put away every sin and the weight which easily besets us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so we look unto Jesus, and we remember who we are, and here's this temptation coming at us. A temptation we failed at before. And we think, well, God has forgiven me before. Maybe he'll just forgive me again. Christians don't like that answer. Christians want to press on from that and say, Lord, give me grace. I've spoken unkindly to my wife. It's about ready to come out. Lord, help me back off. Help me repent of even the thought of it. How can I bless this lady who has slaved for me, who has worked for me? She's not perfect, but she's my wife. She's the only one I'm to die for, just as Jesus died for the church. And I'm going to put a big covering of love over all her sins, shortcomings, weaknesses, It doesn't matter. I love her. She is the apple of my eye. She's number one, and there's no number two. 
Now the devil, he wants to change that. And we read here that Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. May I list a few of them for you. It tells us in the Gospel of John, he has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He wants to steal everything from you, your faith, your salvation. He can't take salvation ultimately. He wants to steal your good works, steal your good name, whatever he can do to steal. He wants to kill you. He killed ten of Job's children. And that by the allowance of God, we trust those ten children went to be with the Lord. They had heard the gospel from Job. Job had given sacrifices for them, prayed for them every day. He has the power to kill only at God's purpose, though. Remember, only Jesus, only the Lord can ultimately kill. He's come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's what he is. He has come to lie and to lie to you about everything. Remember, this, this book was also written. It says in chapter 2, verse 26, these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. And we read earlier, you know, we read that we should not be deceived. Beloved, um, he wants to put lies in our hearts and our minds and deceive us. He wants to afflict us, to accuse us. He's always accusing us before God. That doesn't work out very well. <laughs> accusing the brethren before God who says, I have justified them. I have given my son. They are going free into heaven. He wants to divide. Don't forget, he wants to divide us today. This church, he wants to separate us in any way. Any, any, he'll take a small thing, he will make a mountain out of a molehill. Instead of us putting love over our brethren's sins and, mis- and, 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 and shortcomings, failures, he wants us to think about them, or prosecute them, and divide us in any way he can. He wants to diminish the Lord before us. Has God said, remember in the garden, and God doesn't want you to eat of every tree? What kind of a God would not let you eat of every tree? It's God who wants to save you and protect you from sin because there is sin out there. And Adam and Eve still sinned. He wants to deride and destroy us. So there's all these works, but look what Jesus did. It says that he was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. He did a good job of it. You remember it says in Colossians chapter 2 that he made a show openly of him, triumphing over him. And it's like, you want to go to battle? (laughs) Yes, you have me on a cross. These wicked people have put me here. But it's finished. (laughs) I've accomplished everything necessary to take them to heaven, and they will go there. Victory is sure. He destroyed the works of the devil. Now, people will say, but what's going on? Why is he still out there causing such a stir? And it actually tells us in the book of Revelation, he knows he's only got a little time, and so he's really trying to ramp up the evil and destroy all that he can. Well, as I was uh, looking around at something, I I noticed that there was this guy in Corpus Christi in 2018. He sees this rattlesnake. He says, I'll take care of business. His wife is there. She's watching this. He's the man. He takes the shovel, cuts off the head of the rattlesnake. We've got this covered. He's collecting the parts. Guess what the head does? It actually is able to swivel and bit him, and he almost died. And the venom, which kills about 15 to 20% of those bitten by this kind of rattler, he was, he was in terrible condition by the grace of God. He was, he was saved from that. How in the world do you have a snake with its head cut off biting someone? By the way, the other end can also writhe around for a while. Satan. <laughs> he's been destroyed at the cross, but he's still got some reflexes he's using, and he's going to use them all that he can because he knows his end is certain to come, and he will be placed in the lake of fire forever and ever. And so we do battle with him. It tells us in James that we are to resist the devil. How do we resist the devil? We draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to us. We remember we're children of God. Temptation? It's not like I'm immune to it. I feel it very strongly. But remember, temptation is not sin. And the devil will say, you were tempted, you just sinned. Jesus was tempted and did not sin, and you can run away from that temptation and not sin. And that's why he's writing this book. 
so that you may not practice sin. Don't continue practicing it. I'm going to give you some knowledge that Jesus is infinite God who came to bear our sins. He's borne them for you and you are his child. Remember that and practice sin because he who doesn't practice it is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God, remember we're children, born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Whose seed is this? We have the Spirit of God in us. You remember Galatians 2.20. You might have it memorized. I'm going to turn there lest I fail you. Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. His seed remains in him. The Spirit of God lives in the Christian Christ lives in our hearts by faith. And does the Spirit of God want to sin? Does He want you to sin? Does He ever tempt you to sin? No. God does not tempt any man, it tells us in the book of James. We're tempted of our own flesh, of our own sinful parts that are still there, the sin that remains in us. And I want you to turn to Romans 7. Maybe it's a passage you know well, but you must think about this passage when it thinks about practicing sin, but I didn't practice it in that sin. Yes, the Lord forgave me, but how in the world do I deal with that? How do I understand that I can still sin when I'm a Christian? It tells me that Christians don't practice sin, and I'm doing it. So in Romans chapter 7, Verse 15 says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, this is Paul speaking, for what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. In other words, I really... My my innermost man, my, my heart of hearts did not want to commit sin, but I did it anyway. But sin that dwells in me, I did sin. For I know that is in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no more I who do it, but sin dwells in me. I find that a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Now this is talking about a Christian because lost people don't will to do good. Some have actually thought this could not be Paul talking as a Christian. Paul is talking as a Christian. And Paul is saying, I want to do what is right at all times. But I find that I fall into sin. The things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I wanted to do, I don't do. I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Now think about Paul. He has just written the book of Romans. He might be tempted to think, boy, I did a good job there. No, that, no I, it was the Lord who gave me this book. Or I've just helped establish the church in Philippi. And the enemy comes and really pats him on the back and he's tempted to be proud of what he did. Or to say something or to do something. This was a man who later on will say this in this chapter. He says, verse 23, But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law which is in my members. O wretched man that I, present tense, am, who will deliver me from the body of death, I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. His mind is completely fixed upon serving God, but the flesh is weak. And he finds he needs a Savior. And then verse 1 of chapter 8, There is therefore now no condemnation to those 
who are in Christ Jesus. Are you not thankful for that? So here's this apostle. Here's this one who says he labored harder than they all, who wrote more books than anyone else in the New Testament. And now he's got this law that he's wrestling. In his mind, he serves the law of God, which is just and holy and good. But he finds this flesh is always fighting. He's always having to put it away. Crucify it, he says. Crucify it. Put it to death. Remember, you're a child of God. Remember, Jesus Christ lives in you. His seed remains in you, and you cannot practice sin. One great teacher of the Word of God said, you don't have to sin. (laughs) Here's this option before you, this temptation. You don't have to choose sin as you once did. (laughs) Sin was the one-way street you always chose. A lesser or a greater sin, but you always chose the sin, right? Hey, I I didn't choose the greater sin. I chose the lesser sin. That was pretty good of me, wasn't it? We always gloried in ourselves. But now we glory in Christ and we can turn and not practice sin Even as it tells us here, those who are born of God do not practice this. Verse 10, and then, so so we've looked at who are we to behold as we walk with the Lord, and then what are we, in what way are we to walk in a, in His righteousness, keeping His commandments, walking in those commandments, walking in the Ten Commandments, walking in His two great commandments to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, to love your neighbor as yourself, to obey the the corollary commandments all the way through the New Testament that are given in every book. And so we see now a specific important part of this walk. Here is an example he's going to give us in verses 10 through 15. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is he who does not love his brother. And so he's bringing in again this motif. He's already mentioned it previously in chapter 2. And so he brings it back in again here symphonically. He says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He's already spoken about that in chapter 2. In the book of Leviticus, We're commanded to love one another. We know that Adam should have loved Eve and knocked the fruit out of her hands, said we can't eat that. He didn't love her there. Should have loved her. But then he gives a specific of this in in verse 12, going to that second generation. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So here is the specific commandment he emphasizes. And he shows that a Christian is one that if you love your brother, you're a Christian. You you can be certain of that. If you love the brethren, you're born of God. Only God could make your heart like that. Because if your heart wasn't like that, you would hate Jesus. You would not know and love his people. Jesus said they will hate you as well. Do you remember over there in Matthew chapter 10, he says this. Verse 25. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher... And a servant like his master, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, the lord of the flies, they call the master of the house the devil, how much more will they call those of his household? Christians can't do that. They love the ones the world hates. They love brethren. They don't only just love Baptist brethren, that would be cultic. They love everyone who names the name of Christ all over the world, whatever denomination they might be. If they love Jesus, we love them. Now, do we always show that? We don't. We have to wrestle with that. We have to wrestle with the flesh. But in our heart of hearts, we find love for one another. You might have read a book by Andrew, uh, Brother Andrew called God Smuggler. 
And God's smuggler, you know, he's smuggling Bibles into the Iron Curtain countries in those days. And he did it in a very interesting way. He, he prayed, Lord, you made in your day uh, blind men see. Lord, make seeing men blind. And he put a Bible right next to him. He'd go through the checkpoint, and they couldn't see it. He took the highway. He said, you know, I had the Bible right there, and they let me go on through, and I began to pass out Bibles. Well, he's in one of these countries. He's got a whole suitcase full of Bibles. And he's supposed to meet with some guy he's never seen, no picture, doesn't know who he's supposed to go. He, he's supposed to go to this apartment. And he sees this individual coming toward him. And he said, a miracle of the Christian faith occurred. We both recognized we were Christians. We both turned in, didn't say a word, went up to his room. I opened the case. He held the, he held the Bible and began crying. He could tell he was a Christian. He loved that man before he ever heard his voice. And we do this with Christians. Have you ever noticed that? You're with someone and there's something different. And if you start inquiring, yes, they know the Lord. You know, and maybe you're going to encourage them. Maybe you couldn't tell and they were Christians. Well, that's okay. But we love them still. Love them however we can get them. And it doesn't mean that we rejoice in their sin. Remember, love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Love might have to go to a brother and reprove a brother. Remember, it tells us in the book of Proverbs that open rebuke is better than secret love. And so love sometimes has to come boldly, as John has done in this book, and stated very clearly, Christians do not practice sin. And how many Christians have read this and say, wait a minute, I must not be thinking of the fact that I am a child of God because I plunged into that. If I just remembered who I am, what He has done for me, how He has saved me from my sins, how He suffered for every one of those sins, why would I commit that sin for which He had to suffer so much? And a Christian always wants to go back and flee and cleanse themselves by the blood of Christ. So this is a very important part of the walk. And we're not to be as Cain who slew his brother. You see, these two men were raised in the same home. Same parents, probably heard of the garden, heard of the fact that the Lord had provided garments for Adam and Eve, had slain a, a beast for them, shed blood for them. They knew where they were to love each other, and they're out in this field, and Cain takes vengeance upon his brother. There is a commentary on this in Hebrews chapter 11. If you turn there, we we'll read the divine commentary. This is the faith chapter of the Hall of Faith. In verse 4 it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. We know that Abel brought a blood sacrifice. We know that Cain brought a sacrifice of the grain. Now, there are questions about this. Sometimes we always point to the fact that Cain didn't bring a blood sacrifice. It's, we must also remember in the Old Testament there were sacrifices of grain that could be given. What was said here, it was by faith Abel offered this and Cain did not offer his by faith. He was actually trying to find favor with God by a sacrifice he made. Might have been a much better sacrifice if it had blood. We'll leave that. But that was the, that's the important part here. It was by faith offered this. And Cain hated him hated him because he was righteous and his works were righteous. See, Abel was actually walking in what he was. He wasn't just saying, hey, I'm righteous because I believe it doesn't matter how I treat you, Cain. No, he was a good brother. And Cain hated him and slew him. Now, the fact that we have not died yet is mercy. God has kept us. I honestly believe this, that if he put, put, took his hand off the world, you couldn't walk down anywhere in Baton Rouge without someone killing you if you're a Christian. I don't know if you've heard this recently, but someone has suggested we go to war with Russia because they are a Christian nation. <laughs> well, well, historically, uh, uh, they were the Eastern Church, and uh, 
they, some things they hold we don't hold, but they, they hold that Jesus is God. They hold that the Father is God. They hold in the sacrifice. And they have a lot of places of worship there. And yes, they were shut down during communistic days. And in the 19, early 90s, there was glasnost and there was a lessening and they were opened up and they lost the USSR. And then it was, you're free to go to Russia. I was able to go in 2008 for a month and preach Christ. And it wasn't quite as free as I'd like. They didn't really want me preaching on the street. Uh, but I could pass out tracts quietly to old ladies. But anyway, um, it, it's, they, they, they actually, people would want to kill you because you're a Christian. I know that in Albania in the 70s, that if you killed a Christian and they said, why did you kill him? Then you said he was a Christian, they would say thank you and you would never be prosecuted for it. That's how much they hated Christians in Albania in the 70s. And so this is what we have. And we are this great contrast. We are to love our brethren and lay down our lives for them. Let us close in reading Jesus' words in John 13. John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. The way we treat each other in this church should speak to the world that there is a love they have for each other unlike us. That we are going to lay down our lives. If one of us hurts, we all hurt. If one of us in difficulty, we're all in that difficulty together. And this is in our best day thinking we are children of God together. And so we've had this great passage here where we have beheld the Lord and the great love he has for us in Christ so that we can walk not practicing sin and so that we might also love the brethren as we are made to do and as we will do and as we must do. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is Lord. We thank you that you have sent him to pay for every sin we have ever committed. Lord, we ask you to make us like him, and we know you're going to do this, and you want us to pray according to the word of God. And this very book of 1 John tells us that if we ask anything according to your will, you will do it. And so, Lord, when we ask you to make us like the Lord Jesus, you are delighted to answer that prayer. Now, Lord, we do not compare ourselves among ourselves. That's not wise. But Lord, we compare ourselves to the Lord Jesus and we cry out, O wretched man that we are. Who will deliver us from the body of this death? We thank the Lord through Jesus Christ that he has delivered us, that he is our Lord and Savior. Lord, help us to go forth to honor you. Help us to go forth to praise you and to turn from every sin. We pray for those among us, Lord, who have not yet come to Christ, who will die in their sins if they continue as they are. We pray, Lord, you give them grace to flee to Jesus Christ before it's everlastingly too late. And we ask you this for Jesus' sake. Amen.